This is episode 18 with Sebastian Robertson. G'day legends and welcome to Your Life of Impact, where we connect with world-class athletes and coaches, health experts and enthusiasts, inspiring entrepreneurs and community leaders, all to teach you how to tap into your inner excellence. I'm your host, Brett Robbo, and I'm extremely grateful you're joining us today on your impactful journey. Sebastian Robertson is a recognized entrepreneur and executive with a strong social focus. He's the co-founder and CEO of Birdie, which is a platform focused on drone technology that helps businesses to save time, money, and solve problems with drone footage and data. Prior to Birdie, Sebastian founded the social enterprise Batia and was its founding CEO for five years, establishing Batia as a national leader in innovative programs, focusing on the engagement and education of young people in mental health. Sebastian remains actively involved in the organization as its chairman, and it's because of this amazing not-for-profit of Batir that Seb and I are deeply connected. This is a very interesting episode on a topic that I am extremely passionate about and have been deeply impacted by in my life. In this episode, you will learn the best way to smash the stigma of mental health, how not-for-profits actually create an economy and how Batir is saving many costs around mental health because of its preventative strategies, the power of community to help change and save people's lives, and the future of drones and how they are also being used to save lives. <laughs> well, this will be great for the listeners. <laughs> oh, here we go. A great way to start an interview is expose yourself to the interviewer, right? Um, so for those unaware, I have a uh, tattoo, or some people think I have a tattoo on my bottom, but I can uh, put your les- listeners at ease. I do have a tattoo. Do you want to see it? Well, Have you ever seen it? No, I haven't. And I was seriously not going to go any further in this interview. That's why I wanted to start it like this until <laughs> I had seen the tattoo on your well, bum. Even though I'm at university, it's probably a questionable place to be exposing myself. Let me um, give you the absolute honour. of. Uh... There it is. It is. It exists. <laughs> Very good. It does exist. So it I am exist. standing here looking at a tattoo on your bum cheek. Of Batir. Yeah. How did that come about? Well, firstly, I'm, glad, I'm, glad right this there. Is, I'm glad this is a podcast, not a video <laughs> podcast of some form. Um, look, it came about from, from uh, I think, a uh, uh, tattoo for me was never something I really envisaged getting. Um, but I thought that if there was something that I was really passionate about, that I really cared about, I had no reason not to. Um, and it meant so much to me. Batir means so much to me and, and it has been such a part of my life that to be able to wear it every day is a real honor um, and and the day that it happened was phenomenal and and the big reveal it was the day I was leaving Batir as the CEO um, and it was my last day and I got to do the reveal to my family and I think it caught a lot of people off guard but absolutely love it I forget about it all the time but occasionally get a glimpse in the mirror in the morning I'm like oh my god what's blue it's on my t- it's on my ass and I'm like oh no it's a tattoo <laughs> brilliant so the tattoo 
is of Batir. Tell us, what is Batir? Yeah, so Batir is a, um, a charity I set up back in 2011. And, and the idea of Batir was to give a voice to the elephant in the room. So for context, the word Batir is the name of an elephant from Kazakhstan that used to say or speak 20 human phrases um, in Russian. So the idea was it was giving a voice to the elephant in the room. Um, for me, um, what that meant was when I was younger from a personal experience, I, I suffered from um, severe depression, which I'm sure we'll talk about when I was at university and felt that it was an issue that I could never speak about um, openly or, or, or seek the right support about. And that silence and that stigma around it stopped me get, getting the help that I needed at the right time. And so I wanted to work out how we could give a voice to that that elephant in the room and start to talk about this issue more, more broadly and, and in a positive manner, not, not in the negative manner, I think, which is what we connotate to this topic. Yeah, that's what I've learned about Bateria is all the positive things around mental health that I really resonate with. And we'll dive into that shortly, but... You just briefly mentioned it there, but talk to us about your hopelessness that actually led to Batir. Yeah, I th- I, it's always difficult to recap this, even even setting up an organisation about my story. Um, I was uh, at university, I was doing very well, I've got a great family, um, really good friends, always very supported. Um, And I loved the community elements of life. I loved giving back. I loved being involved in anything. I hated academics, uh, mainly because I wasn't that great at it. Um, But but what I did learn was in those leadership roles that I took on and in in my third year at university, I became president of the college on campus, which was a great honor to take on the leadership role of, you know, three, four hundred students who live on campus. Um, And I, and I did love it. I was also burdening a lot internally and, and, I was writing myself about expectations and and what have you and there were those factors but then there was this internal demon that was just getting the better of me um, that I completely lost sleep. I would basically barely sleep hours, two hours a night, that would be it. Um, You know, I'd really struggle coming to terms with who I was as a person and what was my value add and, you know, the more you think about those things internally, the worse and worse it can get because you don't feel like you're giving back every day. You don't feel like you're having that much of an impact. And for me, I just couldn't work out what the solution was. And and that um, deteriorated into a very dark place for me um, and uh, found myself, you know, turning to alcohol and, um, you know, stuff that I wouldn't normally turn to and that was mainly because I just didn't feel comfortable with me as myself in my own skin um yeah so so that that was kind of and that went on but that went on for an extended period of time you know we're talking about uh, well I'd say probably about four to five months of, of really highlighting an issue and then doing nothing about it so in those four or five months there was a real downward slope of where my mentality was at, where my mental health was at, was deteriorating. But I never recognized that would be an issue that would affect me. You know, I had a great life, great family, great network, very well supported. Um, that mental illness was never something that was going to affect me. It was always going to affect someone else and, and I'd be able to support them. But it was never going to affect me as an individual. Uh, and, and it kind of caught me off guard. And because I pushed it away and ignored it, it got worse and worse and worse. And so to get out of the hole, I was so far deep in it that it really took so much effort to come out into the positive light again. And what what was it that sort of triggered that to start to get you out of the hole? To start to get me out, so there's, there's probably two parts. One is um, the recognition I can talk about, uh, and I talk pretty openly about this, but I had this one night where 
um, you know, a really good friend of mine uh, was going through some challenges of her own and I was supporting her through that and, and she had a really bad night and um, she ended up being taken to hospital. She had an accident, taken to hospital and when I was there at site on the scene with her, helping her, we got her into the ambulance um, and the ambulance door was shut and as soon as those doors shut, I just lost it emotionally. I just couldn't control myself, um, not, not as physically but more emotionally. I just... L- Everything came out and there was a huge crowd watching. There would have been about, you know, 200 odd people plus standing around watching. Um, and, and the spotlight, when, when the ambulance left, the spotlight turned to me and there were police there and there were other ambulance officers and campus security were there. And, and I just couldn't control myself for some reason. I was really angry with life and, and everything and everything kind of just boiled out in this one night. And what ended up happening was I ended up being tackled to the ground by these five police officers handcuffed while I'm bawling my eyes out. One of my closest friends is going to the hospital. I've got no idea how injured she is. And I'm being picked up by these police officers, put in a paddy wagon and driven off to the police station. And, and it was kind of, you know, you get taken to the police station. I'm like, charge me, do charge me, find me, do anything. I'll deal with this later. I just want to go to the hospital. I just want to help my friend out. And, and I was there and they're like, we can't, we can't let you go. Do you understand why you're here? And I, you know, in the heat of the moment, you get lost, but hindsight's a bit of a wonderful thing sometimes. And they're like, they said that you're a danger to yourself and you're a danger to others. And to me, that was quite a scary thought. And at the time, it obviously didn't resonate with me because it just made me more angry that they could make such a poor judgment of character and I would never hurt anyone else or myself. And and it was at that realisation that then I was in this holding cell um, by myself of, you know, sitting there going, why am I in here? And it was this light bulb moment of, I can't help my friend, which is what I want to do because I simply have never helped myself. Like I've never taken the time to acknowledge my own journey, my own challenges, my own struggles and that, yes, I do harm myself in, in a very dangerous way and have very uh, dangerous thoughts about my life and the value and whether or not it's worth being here. Um, and that was a light bulb moment for me going, right, I need to prioritise myself first. And you always hear these saying of, you know, in, in the... Um, when you're on the plane and they're talking about when the mask drops, put yours on first and then help other people. You're like, whatever, you, you know, you kind of don't think of that in a practical sense. But here was a tangible way where I was helping other people, but it was almost detrimental to my own health and, and my health going down meant I couldn't keep helping other people. Um, all the support I was providing other people probably wasn't as great as what it could have been or what I would have liked it to be. And so that night, and, and I stayed overnight in this thing and, and was released in the morning, that, that was a real turning point for me going, I need to go seek help. So that was a brilliant moment. But that was the internal acknowledgement of that I'm going to let help in. So in a lot of the issues with mental illness is often we don't let support come in that we don't think someone else can help us through it. So I went, okay, well, help can help me now. How on earth do I get help on this topic? Who do I speak to? How do I have a conversation about it? And I remember the 15-minute walk back to my college room was one of the longest walks I've ever had to do. And you get into my room and I'm going, who's going to knock on the door? Who's going to be there to, um, you know, be there when I need people? Who's going to be there? Um, And it was a very unusual um, guy called David knocked on the door, um, came in and he's like, how are you going? You know, how are you? Sit down. Where are you at? And after these light bulb moment of everything that happened, my immediate response was still, I'm okay, I'm fine. And he goes, no, you're not. You need to start talking. 
And I was like, I've got a choice here. Do I start talking honestly or do I hide it? And that's when I started speaking honestly about suicidal thoughts and attempts and, and this whole journey that I'd gone on that no one knew about, um, completely private in my own, in my own life. And um, that was a real turning point. And he goes, well, you need to go seek professional help. So I say, sure. So I'm on campus and where's the counselling service for Australian National University located? Above the Sports and Recreation Centre, which would be fine if I didn't affiliate seeking help on this topic with stigma and with weakness and with a lack of leadership skill and a questioning of the integrity of the person. If I didn't have that stigma with mental illness, I would have gone to this place. But that's not how I saw it. Um, back then and when I was going through those challenges. So I went there once and I remember going in and all I thought about was who's going to catch me using this service. And then I went in there and then I sat there with the, with the counsellor and all I thought about was, shit, who's going to catch me when I leave here? Like who's going to be standing at the door and see here that I'm not here for sport, which I was there every day for, that I'm here for mental health issues. Um, and that really got me in it. And, and I think that stigma really stopped me from embracing help and embracing help earlier. That obviously did stick with you a lot because the thing that I love about Batir is the hashtag, hashtag smash the stigma. Yeah. And that's what Batir stands for. Yeah. How did you turn it from that internal experience mm. into this amazing organisation that Batir exists as today? Yeah, and I guess this is a bit of a lead on to what Batir does because um, I've spoken about why we kind of set it up and, you know, suicide in Australia um, is the leading cause of death for young people and accounts for over 3,000 deaths a year uh, and they're tragic stories which I don't think anyone should be uh, comfortable with. I don't think anyone should be sitting here thinking we can keep doing the same thing um, and think the results are going to improve. I think we have to start doing things differently. And so I, I got in, you know, I started seeking help and got into a really good place and had a job in finance. And um, I was working in finance for a big global company and, uh, you know, was in a really good headspace. And I just had this moment of what would have changed my journey? Like what would have made me seek help earlier? What would have made me feel more comfortable to share, my, to, to sh- reach out to support? And I just had this moment of, I just wish I'd heard from a young person, a peer, a couple of years older than me, um, talk about their challenges, about how they overcame mental health issues, about what support they sought, how their friends and family helped them through it. Like I just wanted to hear, I just felt that if I'd heard a positive story about someone who had been through something before but had gone on to achieve in their life, then that would have been really beneficial for me to get that first few steps into help seeking. So that's what that's what I decided to do, that I said, well, why don't I share my story about overcoming my journey because maybe it might help someone else out. So that was the original idea of, okay, well, why don't I share my personal story about how I recovered, about how I got through it, about where I turned to, what did help seeking actually look and feel like? And then I went, well, that's great for me, but I'm one story. Like how many amazing stories are out there of people who have recovered, who have gone through some challenging times in their life or live with a mental illness like a bipolar or something and, and, and give back to a community on an ongoing basis and, and really live these amazing lives. Why aren't we telling those stories? Why aren't we telling these stories of recovery and resilience and, and um, you know, audacity and, and, and change that can motivate someone or a young person in particular who is going through those challenges, who's in that dark patch, who can't see through that light, can't see that positivity. Why don't we give them some role models, give them some behaviours that they can mirror 
um, that will make a change and, and, and can have a huge impact on someone's life. So that's what, that's what, we, did. That's what we did. So we set up Batir and Batir trains um, young people who have had a lived experience of a mental ill health. We don't define what it needs to be. It's if you've got a story to tell, we'll help you tell it. And we do a two-day training workshop with them called Being Heard. H-E-R-D, good play on elephants. Um, and and we in that two-day workshop, you're with about seven to eight other people um, and you collectively learn how each of you will tell your story for the first time in a controlled environment. It's very well supported and we talk about structure and storytelling and impactfulness. And the first time we tell your story, it's very emotional. So, you know, being in a controlled space is a great way and going through that journey with other people is also really powerful because then when you go back to your community to share your story, you know that you're a part of a herd, you're a part of a group that's really trying to break that stigma and share their story. Seb Robertson, we've already talked about your bum, but I just want to say welcome to your life of impact. Thank you. This is an absolute honour for me to be here with you uh, in your office, even though we're not at the Batir office, we're uh, in your space here at the uni, as you mentioned. And I need to say that this is one of the most spiritually connected episodes that I've ever felt because of my deep personal connection to Batir and you being the creator of Batir. So, Seb, I genuinely can't thank you enough from the bottom of my heart for making the time for this episode it really is a special one for me no i absolutely love this and and love where you've gone on to do with it and we haven't touched on yet on on our connection and and the and the incredible cobar community that really changed the game for for batir in in a lot of in a lot of ways um and and your your grandparents and grandmother in particular was phenomenal in in batir being embraced by that community and and i think it goes to show the power that an individual can have on a community and the power an individual can change um within a community too and that doesn't necessarily mean you know i I think of your grandmother and and i don't know if we should talk about the context of how we got to cobar yes oh Um, that was i was going to raise it so yeah absolutely yeah that's that's how we are connected so Uh, for everyone listening, my grandmother, I didn't even know about Batir until it was uh, just before my grandparents' funeral and my grandmother had been heavily involved in mm. Cobar trying to get things established there. And then when I heard about Batir and that people were talking about it and then I thought, why was my grandmother so interested in this organisation? What do they even do? What does Batir mean? The more <laughs> I looked into it, the more I loved it and then it clicked and I realised why she was so heavily involved at the the beginning of the sort of inception in Cobar and so that got me more and more involved mm. and, and 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 so for context so Cobar is and I know a, a lot of your regular listeners will know it's a it's a very very far west rural town of, of Australia in New South Wales um, I'm a city boy through and through like I can't deny it as much as I'd <laughs> love to pretend I'm from the country and and wish I had those ties to the land as, as what the country people do but but I, I am from born and bred Sydney um, and and I'm, I'm aware and I've watched organizations try to come up with solutions in rural Australia and realize um, you know in indigenous communities and realize that my observation when you're an entrepreneur in, in these areas where you're trying to impact a community in a positive way in a really challenging social issue, you need to be invited in. You can't just turn up and say, we've got a solution for you. You need to be invited in. And we were very lucky early on with Cobar in terms of a group of young people contacted us saying, we need you to come out to the area. We've, we've got real struggle with mental illness in this community. Can you come out here? Um, 
And, and I was like, if we're going to come out here, we've got to do it properly. We've got to think long term. We've got to think about what's the sustainability of this program. How's it going to be embedded? We can't just dr- fly in, do one program. Well, fly in, then drive four drive. hours or wherever <laughs> um, out to this place in the middle of middle of nowhere, which I love. Um, you can't just turn up and then disappear. You really got to think about what's the ongoing impact. And so I remember the first community program we did out there, I flew out there with a young guy called Brian who helped get us into it. He was one of our speakers who'd been through the Being Heard program and he grew up in Cobar and was living in Sydney and um, happened to be my cousin. Um, And so it was a very small connection in the end. And we went out there and we did a community forum and it was kind of told us there, there are two things you don't want when you hold a community forum in Cobar. One is um, you don't want it to rain. If it rains, no one's going. It, <laughs> no one's going. And the second thing is um, you don't want too much hype beforehand because if everyone says everyone's going to this event, then they don't feel as bad when they don't go because they assume everyone else is going within the community. And so we went in and we had great support from the local news at, um the newspaper, newspaper yeah. um, who, who have been phenomenal the whole way through and a lot of the local businesses and people like your grandmother got so involved and was promoting it. And I was like, no, 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 too much promotion. This is not <laughs> going to work. We're going to have no one there at the at the golf club. And um, it wasn't, it was the Lawn Bowls Club, I think it is. Oh, okay, the yeah. RSL Club. Yeah, the RSL Club. And then, of course, when we turned up, then it rained. And I was like, oh, shit, this is like going to be disastrous. And anyway... It was absolutely packed. The room was packed. And, and we had this, uh, I did this great talk and we did a panel discussion. We had some local service providers there and young people there. And we had the older community there. And, and I remember just tying back to, to your grandmother, I was asked specifically, we run, we run programs for young people. We very much target towards, you know, younger peers, train young people to go back into schools. That, that's our core model. And I was asked, why are you targeting young people? Older people in this community need help as well. And I said... And I was quite honest with them. I said, look, it's not about you guys are on the, if you're not within this age group that you can't help. The best thing that you guys can do as the older generation, as elders of this community is influence the younger people about how we, how they can influence change, help give them the resources to make these things happen because these guys have the passion and the commitment and the drive, but they don't necessarily have the wisdom and the experience that these, that the older generations have and so I was trying to say is like you're not you're not on the outer we're just doing a call out to young people to put their hand up and say let's do it and what we want the elder group to do is support them to do it provide them the resources the structure the strategy to help them make that happen give them the belief that they can influence change and there was no one more impactful in that than your grandmother like she was phenomenal in terms of individual getting behind these young people in that community when they wanted to share their story for the first time. She was right there beside them. She wasn't vocal. It wasn't like she was plastered on billboards and saying she was doing it. She was doing it because it was her good nature and what she loved to do and she knew that these young people had the capacity to change this community and and the mental health and stigma surrounding it in rural Australia but starting in Cobar and and that was what was phenomenal that that was what is impactful like you talk about people that want to have an impact those are the people that make a difference those are the people that in your individual community change that community um so it's very easy for me to sit back here and say you know i set up a tier and 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 i've done some some great things but i am very much aware that Batir has been built off a community of champions like you know um like margaret and and those people in in different communities that really 
got us in there, that supported us, that backed an idea and backed those young people to really change change the culture around stigma um, for mental illness. It's amazing to hear that regurgitated from you actually because I've heard bits and pieces over time and like I said, I, had, I didn't know Batir existed. So yeah. that goes to show my grandmother was just doing the work that needed to be done without plastering it around. And to say, you know, I'm very proud of Batir and everything that they stand for, but I'm very proud of the Cobar community and the way that you just said mm. there that you you understand that it's communities like that that jump on board to help what you've created to help that evolve and to make the impact that it is capable of. Yeah, and and I think it's also important when when we when we first went there, we were very open, saying we don't have the solution, we don't know what three years is going to look like, and we're going back. This would have been, I think, the first program would have been about four, almost four. Yeah, it must have been twenty. 12 yep it would have been around 2012 um you know that that we said we don't know but if we can make it work here we can take this out to the wider community and say we've helped co-design this and i hope that the cobar community knows that that's what we're trying to do that behind the scenes from a strategic point of view we're learning from what's working what's what not working over there that the students at the school have been phenomenal i mean we've got a hundred percent hit rate at the schools at cobar one the one school, that's there. <laughs> um, you know, but the teachers there have been phenomenal. Some of the older students have been brilliant. You know, the, the, the businesses all do the one sock, um, one sock Wednesday, Wednesday um, you know, where they wear one sock that to support Batir, a Batir sock to promote that they're, get the you know, that they get started. the conversation started. Exactly. And so that, that, that approach is working and we hope that it's staying um, with them, but they're driving it. We have, we're pretty hands off with them. The, the, the community is driving and that's what I think is really important. It's funny because I went back there, I've been back there a few times as part of Batir days uh, and I've been there on a Wednesday and I've taken my one sock, but I went back there recently and we were there for a few reasons, but we thought we'll do some stuff for Batir as well. And some of your staff came out, but it was a Monday, so I didn't take my sock. And we went to the school in the morning, and everyone was in their one Batir sock, God. and it was, and they called it Batir Day because people from Batir were in town. That's I, so good. So I, I said to uh, your staff, and I said, right, I know Mum's got some socks in a drawer. Mum was out of town, so I went and grabbed some of Mum's Batir socks, and we had to chuck them on because it was Batir Day in town, even that's though it was amazing. Monday. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. So that's switched stuff from I love. one sock Wednesday to uh, to Batir Day. <laughs> but said, what you've created is it's not just a non-profit. It's not just a much-needed school program. It's a community, like you said, that literally changes and saves people's lives. And you mentioned before around the language around mental health. Let's dive a little bit into that because I know that you want to smash the stigma. How do we, for everyone listening, what does it actually mean to smash the stigma of mental health? Yeah, I, I think the, there's there's two really important things. And I'll, I'll get to the smash the stigma second, secondary. The, the first thing I want to touch on is that um, – Language in the mental health sector is, is very difficult to get right. There, there's a lot of like, oh, you can't say this, you should say this, like that's damaging, that's not damaging. And, and by having that mentality or that culture in, that, in, that, in the industry itself, this is in the professional industry, I think it makes the average person afraid of engaging in the conversation. And so even if you want to be engaged in it, you feel like you don't want to hurt someone, you don't want to make someone worse off, you're afraid if someone's suicidal, can you mention that? Can you ask if someone's suicidal or does that put that does that put suicidation into that person's mind? Um, I don't want to do that, so maybe I shouldn't mention it. You know, whereas in actual fact, we need to start when you're talking about smashing the stigma, we need to start being able to have real conversations 
with real people. We need to be able to facilitate that and know what our role is as what I would say is, you know, an average person in in, in a nice way that I'm really like, I'm like anyone else in the community. I've got my mates. How do I have conversations with them? I think the most important thing is just like if if you're running bread and good example, you're a professional athlete or used to be and now you coach them all. But if they pull, if they, tear their hammy right you can talk to them about the experience of tearing their hammy what's it's like you know that's painful that you know there's a rehab in the process but you're not there strapping their leg and giving them surgery if they need surgery or performing you know if they dislocate the shoulder you're not popping their shoulder back in they're going to a professional to seek that and you're being the friend alongside supporting them in that journey knowing that they've got limitations whilst they're on this road to recovery now in mental health and in mental ill health and mental illness we don't have that same mentality. There's this real struggle to recognize that at the best role someone can play is a supportive friend role. Be open to a conversation, facilitate the questions and walk them to help. That might mean going with them for the first time to see someone, a professional, or going online and looking up resources, or having Lifeline's number in your phone, 13, 11, 14, like having that in your phone so that if you are in trouble or a friend's in trouble, you know you've got someone you can call immediately that can provide that support, and you're there alongside as a mate like you're doing anything else. So supporting the good times and helping them through the bad times. That's the best thing you can do. You want to smash the stigma? The best thing you can do is work out what conversations can you have with your friends. And until you work out how you can do that one-on-one with mates, it's very hard to be part of the bigger picture. It's interesting because when my first experience of that, when you talk around the language and the smashing the stigma, so after being involved with Batir for a little while and raising some funds and thinking, this is great, my grandmother would be proud, I'm helping out Batir fund-wise, I just thought, it's not enough. I want to be involved more. And I contacted you guys and said, what can I do for Batir as an organisation instead of just raising money? I want to be involved at a deeper level. How can I help with that? And your guys said to me, why don't you come along to a school program, Robbo, and we'll just, just check it out, see what we're about, and then let's have a conversation. So I went along and it was a year eight and nine boys school in Sydney and I went there thinking you know I was preparing myself okay this is probably going to be pretty monotone it's going to be sad so you know there's there might be some emotions and things like that just get into that zone and we got there and set up and then as the kids were coming in your Batir team cranked the tunes and it was awesome upbeat funky music and we're bopping yeah, around and yep. as the kids walk in everyone's <laughs> laughing and smiling we're high-fiving each other having a chat yeah and that's how it all started yeah and then the program unfolded and there's you know there's chat around language and statistics and what we're here for and all that sort of stuff and it was just really cool to feel the the change of you guys changing their energetic state as they entered so they they know that they're not coming into this sad somber mood because that's not what you're about and this is the beginning of smashing the stigma around mental health yeah and just before we move on the the real power in that for me and the changer was at the end the kids were uh filling out feedback forms and i said to one of the boys uh, he finished and he came up to me and i said how did you find that mate and he said that was really good because a lot of the stuff that they're talking about is what I've been thinking about. And I said, so do you feel comfortable now that you've got some skills to be able to speak out? And he said, yeah, I'm going to go and talk to mum and my mates about it. And it just hit me like my heart sort of just rose with pride for Batir straight away yeah. again in that 
because yeah. I thought that's one prime example. I didn't even have Batir gear on and he was happy to just tell me that. So, yeah. But you guys as staff must hear those kind of stories all the and time. And, and they're the stories that you live for. They're the stories that make you feel like you're making a change. You know, you can get when, – when you're growing an organisation and, and you think big, you can get lost in the most powerful conversations, the ones like that, the, those those interactive moments where you hear a student or a young person or, or a mate – um, take ownership of the issues that they're facing and recognize that they can have a conversation about this and it doesn't change them as a person. It doesn't make them a lesser person. It doesn't make them softer. Um, in fact, it probably makes them a, a more powerful leader because they're showing vulnerability and they're showing the ability and the skills to be able to have topics about softer um, softer emotional um, topics. So th- those, are the, those are the moments you absolutely love and you live and breathe and and the batir team get the get the joy of um seeing that on a regular basis um and and they really do and and you know i think sometimes you do have to be there to feel the impact of what these things can do um stats and writing up our impact and we talk about making sure we do maintain an impact so the average help seeking in australia sits at about depending upon your research anywhere between 20 percent um or 15 to 25 30 percent is is the, the percentage of people that need help that go and seek help is only that. So it means, you know, four in five people are suffering in silence. Um, so after a petite program, we constantly, and we're talking, we've now reached, I think, around just over 70,000 young people. We have help seeking at about 80%. They state that 80% of those students would be proactively going and seeking help when they, when they need it. And that's a phenomenal for us. Like, that's a huge impact. But that's statistics on a larger scale. The stories are what make it what make it real. They're they're the they're the things that you love and and you you feed off. After that, that's when well, I knew I was already willing to to give myself. And they just you know I've been an ambassador now for Batir and I've stepped into schools a few times because and it's not that I search for those stories all the time and I don't get them all the time, but I know that they're existing. Whether yeah. they share it with me, the Batir staff, their parents, whatever, that's the real impact. Yeah. And, and there's also impact of, you know, when you go into schools like you've done is, is sometimes it takes a month for them to look back and go, well, now I'm, now I'm in trouble or now I need help. And hey, I remember this talk back then. And I can tell you some incredible stories of people that have hit me up on LinkedIn four years after we did our first ever school presentation. You know, brilliant. Where, you know, like that—that stuff for me. That I'm like, that means it's sat with that person for that long, and they felt comfortable, trusted the brand enough, trusted Batir enough to get back in touch and say, "This is what's happening," or "This is what I went and did." Thanks, for, thanks for your talk. And and that—that's an incredible. If we, we we talk about ripples, and and you know, if you can get more and more people throwing those rocks out and getting those ripples happening across the community in Australia and and globally. It's an issue not just in Australia, but, you know, if you can get it happening here and at home first, then, my God, what a place to be, what a place to be making an impact. And that's – you've started a huge ripple there. Let's talk about the business part from a different aspect around the non-profit component because I was shocked at a barbecue late last year when a woman was knocking these – um, charities and non-profit organisations, not Batir specifically, yeah. but just talking about it in general where saying your money actually goes into wages and costs and it's not directly to the cause. And I passionately spoke up because I thought this this woman's actually got no idea. And I said, well, actually, what I like about these organisations is, and Batir's a prime example, is the opportunities that you create, the economy that you create and that deep rippling effect that you create. Mm. And, and I think... 
it's hard. The not-for-profit industry is one of the biggest industries in Australia. Like, like there is. I don't know the numbers, and I really should. But there's a huge, like, hundreds of thousands of people that are employed in Australia to do. Um, social impact models of some form so welfare support or organizations um you know education is also deemed to be most schools they're they're all not-for-profits like you know you you, it's just there's an unusual mentality around community charities so places like batir there's a real question on where should an organization spend their money where should it not in my mind is like we, we have to be very conscious of the way we spend people's money. You know, people trust us to make donations um, and or run events and fundraise for us. They they need to trust that we know that we know how to spend that money wisely um, and that we can have the best impact with their dollar. That's the important thing, that we have the best impact that we can with that dollar to make a change on the topic that we said we'd have an impact on. And for us, that's that's reducing stigma and increasing help-seeking rates and and primarily around young people. Um, That is a responsibility that we take very seriously. Now, the best things you can do in this is if we're providing, say we're training young people to share their story, we have a responsibility to care for those young people. We've trained over 250 young people to share their story, individuals, people who've got amazing stories to tell. We have a responsibility to help them out as much as possible and we need to provide structure and support for them to do that. Now, to do that in a consistent manner in in a way that is safe, in a way that leverages the best opportunity out of them, that allows them to structurally go back and have an impact in their community, we need to provide employment opportunities to be able to do that, to be able to do that safely, to do it on scale, to have the impact that we're having. We've got to do that. And so I see it as we're providing new opportunity in a new area, an area that people would love to have more of an impact. Um, you know, that that's an incredible part. Or even um, let me talk more specifically about some of the costs associated for our program. We, we take in a school program, say the average school program goes for about an hour, we take a facilitator who sets the scene, as you said, they pump the music, they set the tone, they talk about the context setting of where mental health is within Australia and they provide a safe platform and then they invite up one of our speakers. And so we have two speakers generally at every program um, and they've been through the Being Heard program. So we've already supported them through a two-day workshop, ongoing mentoring. We pay those speakers um, who are sharing their story as a part of the paid participation policy that the National Mental Health Commission has released. We pay them because their story should be recognised as contributing and we want to recognise their time. Now, we've got to cover that cost somehow. Now, we charge schools a minimal amount um, so that they pay for the service and we think that's important for sustainability, um, but it doesn't cover our costs. And so what we really need is those in the community that have the capacity to give or want to give give to help us keep reaching more young people, that we keep it at a price that's fair and reasonable, um, but we can keep having an impact at different schools and different communities with different classrooms. And we need the support from the community to do that. Without the community, without philanthropy, and philanthropy not just in a big dollar sense and an individual big check, but in a community sense of buying a sock or hosting a barbecue, they make a difference to organisations like ours and they are fundamental to our business model that we can engage with those people. I love that you put some numbers around that because that's what I think, that's why I stood up at this barbecue uh, and just sort of put my 
little two bobs worth in because I know that that's the reason why. So you guys have to cover so many costs, but mm. also, like you said, you're providing so many opportunities. You're actually creating economy on top of those opportunities. Talk about a massive ripple effect. And then you just linked it back to community in the way that communities can support. And, you know, when I realized all these costs and things like that, I thought, well, I do have to be an ambassador. I want to be. I do need to raise money. I want to raise money. And mm. it just made me get creative. And as you know, we created uh, Life Tees and, yeah, and yeah. did a limited edition and just sold them and profits went to Batir. And now Scotty Reardon has completely yeah. changed who he's donating 100% of the profits he's from his shirt champion. straight to Batir. And he did yeah. an event in uh, Tamora recently and raised, you know, yeah, just, the under, golf day. Yeah, just under $10,000. And that's yeah. because he he's not seeking mental health services what he's actually doing is realizing this is a service that needs to happen in my community mm. around tomorrow and around that region yeah and yeah. i want to actually help this happen yeah and and i think the other big part is we we are in preventative education the idea of our programs is about equipping people young people but equipping people with the tools and resources that when they're in trouble they know where to go get help earlier faster or that they can implement skills and strategies before it even becomes an issue. Now, if we do that, we're in theory helping to prevent costs, the huge cost that comes to society of, let me use uh, uh, the loss of a life. We lose over 3,000 Australians every year to suicide, 3,000 Australians every year to suicide. It's like seven a day. Seven a day we lose. And, and for every completed suicide, it's estimated that there's 30 attempts. So when you talk about cost in, on a community, the cost of that and going through the hospital system and the loss of a life, that you can't put a value on a loss of a life, especially like a young person, but at any age to, to something like this is horrible. Um, and so if we can... I'm not saying that we are the only solution. I think it's very important to highlight that we are part of a solution. We, we do preventative education, but you know there are service providers that do phenomenal work on the ground day in, day out, helping people through those challenging times and, and they play, play a vital role. And you've got things like Lifeline and Beyond Blue and Headspace and your local GPs and your counsellors. They provide phenomenal services. And then you get the researchers as well, the research, are we being effective in the way we're providing services? Are we being effective? Are there better models that we can implement to, to address this ongoing issue that's happening? Um, are there better medications that we can provide for people that might need the medication? And, and then for us, we're in prevention. So we're in how do we better educate, um, better educate and better engage people on this topic so that we can be more prepared for these conversations. That's, that's the part that we're playing. So, um, you know, I think we all have a role to play um, and I think that ambassadors like yourself and Scotty are great examples of people that put your hand up and say, I'm going to do something and you guys come up with an initiative often and, and come to us with it and we go, great, go for it. If you're going to lead it, go for it. They're the champions that we need. They're the ones that create the ripple effect as well. What, just thinking of uh, staffing numbers, I'm just picturing you back in the day creating this and starting on your own it was obviously a one-man band to begin with because it started from your mind your thought yeah. what are the numbers at now in Batir? what's the staffing yeah the so schools um so let me come back so we set it up in 2011 and it was just myself and you know my family were brilliant and had this big vision of what, what we could do and um my brother was phenomenal as well and helped set it up he's very good at governance and structures and my sisters were great and my parents were great um but i remember sitting there the, the first 
12 months, it was basically just me. I'd go out, I'd facilitate, I'd tell my story, I'd be running the Being Heard programs. Like it was really just me in there. Um, and then from that, we, whilst we were doing that, we were very conscious of structure and, and safe scaling and support and how do we move forward. And, um, you know, now in, we're, what, halfway through 2017 and um, we have now, um, I think it's about 26 full-time staff. We have about 20... Um, casual staff and a couple of part-timers. So it's around 50 people now that are on the, on the books um, with Batir. But, but, and, and that's an incredible size for an organization. Like very quickly, we've got, we've got some really good scale. We're at, I think it's now up around 200 schools across Australia. We're at five universities on campuses. We have, uh, you'd go in the thousands of people that have volunteered or done some form of engagement with us. And we've trained 250 young people to share their story. Now, that's the story that we should be talking about. 250, over 250 young people that are now putting their hand up saying, I want to use my tool, my story as a tool to change the community and the stigma around this. I want to use my story of resilience and hope and recovery to help someone else out in need. Now, that's a, that's a platform for change. That is something that we haven't provided these people before and they're take, they're taking the torch and running with it and saying i'm going to create a change in my community they're they're the champions that's that's the part if i if you ask me what am i most proud of that right there is phenomenal that 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 there regardless of what happens if batir stops tomorrow those people continue to have a ripple effect no matter what they do and, and they'll continue to have a change and and i hope we've equipped them with different skills and resources to to take ownership of that and, and do what they do best brilliant explain what about your personal growth and development and opportunities that have presented themselves over the years since Batir's inceptions? Because I've seen some amazing events you've attended and just following you online and groups <laughs> you've been a part of, such as the Supernova Group. Yep. And I understand that sometimes as humans, we know we have a lot to offer in many different communities and environments, but it's not that easy to break into some circles and experience those opportunities. Yeah, you, you're right, and and this is a this is a hard one because when I stepped down from Batir, I knew Batir had to be bigger than me in my story, and so I was very conscious of doing a handover very at a younger age um, to show that it was about a model and, and a and a platform rather than about Seb and Seb's story, and that's been brilliant to be able to witness. But it left me in a – I never thought about what was next. I was so focused on Batir that I never really thought about, my God, what am I going to go on and do next? And, I like, you know, it's very easy in these conversations and these topics to ignore the challenges that I face personally post um, that I didn't know career-wise where I was going. I knew I wanted to do something else, but I wasn't sure what or where in what area. And that I had um, found myself as CEO of a growing organisation – with no real CEO skills, it's not like someone tapped me on the shoulder and said, be CEO. It was that I was the founder and then it was assumed that I'd be CEO and so I stayed CEO. But I never really knew if I was a good CEO. I just happened to be that title. So, you know, we have this – it's called the imposter syndrome. Like you're in a room, you're going, do I really deserve to be here now I'm here? And at some point someone's going to ask me to leave and say, you don't really deserve to be here, time to go, mate. My mentality with that is until someone tells me to go, I'm just going to take ownership that I should be here um, and and – um, you know, fight for a seat at the table because you, a different perspective and different view deserves to be there. There are a lot of people that do amazing things in the community that don't get recognised. The, the, I'd say there are more people that do stuff that don't get recognised than that, that do. And often the ones that do get recognised, it, it's an unfortunate cycle that it's like once you get recognised in one, it kind of becomes easy to get recognised across the board. 
That's not what this is about. It's not about that. It's about, you know, where can you create, or for me, where can you have a great impact and a great change and what's going to challenge you mentally. Um, and, and that's where like, you know, for me switching um, back into the business world now, so I'm back doing another startup in, in drone technology, um, you know, it's a very different challenge. It's a very different network and I feel like I'm at the bottom of the barrel again but I think that's where you get hungry. I think that's where you you fight for your right to sit at the table. You fight for what you believe in. You, you have to come up with creative ways to make it happen, to learn how to better tell your story and how to engage people along that way. And, um, you know, I love that. I love that. I, I, but I'd be lying if I said it was simple. Like it's not like you go from one and then all of a sudden there's another platform waiting for you. You've really got to – you got to you got to dig deep, and I think that's what I'm in the process of now. I'm I'm on that point where I know that you know the next year or two will be really difficult for me, um, and and setting up a new business from scratch. Once once you have momentum, you can push momentum. Starting momentum from scratch very different, very different skill set, very different motivation that's needed, and that's hard day to day. That's hard. It's hard to stay that motivated to do that. Um, but you know, I always say I've, my wife Shaz is a, like absolute champion, love it a bit. Um, but one of my big things is I will always make my bed in the morning. I know it sounds weird, but I will always make my bed in the morning. Why? Because it, for me, it starts the new day. It starts fresh and it's something that I'm in complete control of. And I know when I get home, I prefer to see my room with my bed made. And it's a very small thing, but for me, it's become more and more of this like, well, I can control that, so I will do it. And it makes me feel better knowing that I've ticked something off. Um, and it's very easy to fall into a slump and not do it and run out. But I, you know, and it doesn't mean, I'm, well, let's just make I'm not, it's not hospital bed making it. Like, it's not like a, you're going to a hotel. It's just generally just the dude who pulled up. But it does make me feel better that I do do it. And, and it's something that I can do. So, you know, each day, little things add up. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. I The first thing I do is express my gratitude for the day. And when I bounce out, I pull the blankets up and uh, make the bed. Yeah. I know what you're saying there. So you mentioned there about uh, taking a bit of a turn into a new business. Yeah. And you mentioned a couple of times about stepping down from CEO of Batir. And we're here at the university and where your office is for this new startup. Now, the yeah. startup's called Birdie. Tell us a bit about Birdie. What is it? How did it come about? Yes. And where are we going with Birdie? Yeah. So Birdie, Birdie we call it, um, it's your platform to the skies. And, and what we're about is we develop drone software uh, to help businesses and individuals um, better integrate the use of drones into their daily life. Um, and what, the, what that means in a, in a tangible sense is there's a lot of hype about innovation and new technologies and and. Um, opportunities that are presenting but often what happens is it gets a newspaper article but no one really understands how that's going to be implemented how do I use this on a daily basis how as a business is this going to help me reduce my cost how do I create a report from the drone footage to making me make a better decision in business or in sports sports a great example like you know how do I take drone footage which is one of the best footages you can get for sport from an analytical point of view from watching yourself play you can see where the people are running the angles that you're running at whatever it might be you can get some incredible footage how do you use that in a tangible way to improve my performance or to share that performance so how do I share that with my friends and family and, and in that community so Birdie's really about I guess the stepping stones to integrating drone use within your functions um, and we focus a fair bit on asset management and businesses with assets so building inspections and we can do 3D models of buildings and map it out and um, calculate what needs to be repaired, what doesn't and generate customised report to 
the sporting world where we've got a app called Chalker, which allows you like a coaching tool. So pretend when you're watching Channel Nine Sport or wherever people watch sport, um, you know where you can draw on this. They draw on the screen and they're like, "That's the line you should run," or "That's where." That's what we've created. Very simple, very low cost, uh, and the idea is that we bring those skills at professional level to amateur sports, and everyone should be able to have that tool at a very reasonable rate. So, it, look, it's it's good fun. Um, I, I love it. It's a big change for me. Um, we're, we're fortunate to be at the University of New South Wales at the Michael Crouch Innovation Centre. Um, we've got a small team um, of four um, that we all uh, work really well together, uh, different skill sets. Some are software developers, some are in marketing, project management skills, some are former lawyers and helicopter pilots. And, you know, it, it's it's a great combination. It's about utilising different skills and different, um, I guess, mindsets to, to make this work helicopter pilots involved uh, imagine are they the the drone drivers do you have yeah, to be a helicopter so pilot to be a you, drone don't, driver? you don't have to <laughs> you don't have to be it's one of these unique opportunities where drones is a different model but obviously his knowledge of aviation law um, and how do we fly safely in the skies is a really important part for us how do we fly safely and take on the responsibilities that come with drones and the, and the new challenges that will happen around what's the right use of photos from drone footage and how do you make sure you're staying out of the way of um, emergency services where there's emergency site but how can you add value when, when they do need you um, you know can you add value to search and rescue by using thermal imagery in, in, in search and rescue say in the Blue Mountains or if there's a fire and they can't get down how do they know what damage it's causing so there's some incredible applications of drones the benefit of um, we we have a operating a remote operating certificate and we need a chief pilot um, to oversee that and they oversee all our flights and um, processes and systems from an aviation perspective and so Jack's our chief pilot so he loves the loves the title too <laughs> <laughs> what I, I don't know much about drones and you mentioned a couple of things there but there's obviously a real uh, growing demand for the drones in the industries that you're tapping into but there's also a real growing interest just from community to have a bit of fun with it oh yeah what, what does the future yeah, don't get of lost drones, in the fun of drones yeah what yeah. does the future look i, I realize that there's drone racing too, yeah drone they? racing there's a drone racing league it's a huge competition i mean there, there's a there's the world grand prix i think it's called in dubai where the, there's over a million dollars in prize money you for a drone racing. For drone for racing. For drone racing. Like this is like, it's almost like the Formula One of the skies. But these guys are, and, and females, it's not, it's not one sex is better than the other in this space. It's just an incredible skill set. These guys are flying. These drones are going like 140 k's an hour. Um, you know, doing incredible manoeuvres in, in very tight spaces. And, and the best thing about it is you can watch it online at any point at any time and, and get really involved. I, I think touching on your point is like there is a real growth in recreational drones. Recreational drones have had the biggest growth. You know, you're talking, I think in 2015, there's, there was an estimated like it was almost nearly five, mil, uh, 5 million units of 5 million drones were sold across the world. Now, that's an incredible amount of drones out there um, doing their thing. Now, in most times, it's just a hobby. It's a recreational toy. It's not really used to, to change someone's life. What we look at more is how do you take those skills that those people are getting and go upskill them to the point where they go, well, is there a commercial application that can be used for good? 
So by that, in two manners, let me talk about the social element first. So drones for good is an incredible space, but drones can, drones can be used for, um, you know, carrying life buoys. So if you think of on Australian beaches, the hardest part when some, someone's struggling out, out at sea is that the best thing they can do is get something to hold on to to keep them afloat right so it's all about speed of reaction so you at the moment would send a volunteer out that swim out there or take a take a board out and they get out there as fast as they can you can fly a drone with a flotation device out to them in 10 15 20 seconds you know drop the device they're holding on to it and then the volunteer lifesaver would go out and, and rescue that person or someone would go out and help them back in now i think it's incredible if we could upskill all volunteers in australian beaches to be able to have a drone like that sitting there as a resource that they can use to help people out in the community out who are struggling that's a big game changer in my mind or um in in remote communities in um internationally where they can't get blood supplies to people in need because the road infrastructure is not there. You can fly these um, defibrillators or, or medical devices to people in need and Malawi is, is testing this out there or, you know, there's passenger drones in Dubai. So rather than a taxi, you take a passenger drone and they're testing that with real people for the first time in the world. And then you start talking about drone deliveries and, and packages and Amazon and those places and Australia Post are looking at drone deliveries. So the applications from a drone perspective are incredible, um, absolutely incredible. What we need to not forget is that we need to upskill a new uh, workforce to be able to do this. The so drone drivers. Not just drone, not just the drone drivers. Like there, there is a huge need for people who understand drones, who can pilot the drones. And, and we need, at the moment, the regulation is you need per drone, you need a pilot. But mm-hmm. in 10 years from now, if you think big picture, it might be that I can control 10 drones from this room. Now, but I need to still be able to see, the, see it and problem solve. And so to problem solve, you have to understand the basics to be able to come up with the solution. And so we need to make sure in the next five years that we're, upskilling a new workforce or a transitional workforce into this new workforce um, to learn about the drones and the applications and the software behind it and how you code the software and then how do you pilot it and how do you develop safe um, flight paths and, and interactions with other people that are flying. Like how do we do that in, in, a, in a responsible way? And that's what we want to be a part of. That's the, that, that progression in that journey is what we want to be a part of. And then, um, you know, those steps is... You know, it's about helping customers out as much as possible to improve their option. And that's the exciting thing, you know, like this is a new space and you talk about and you hear STEM and or science, technology, um, engineering and maths in schools being encouraged a bit more and, and trying to get students to do it. Drawings is a very tangible way that students can test those skills out and apply them and see it being done on the spot. Um, just picturing walking outside in yeah. five to ten years' time with yeah. what you're telling me. Will we walk outside and we'll look up and we'll see a sky full of drones? Is that what you hope for? And and you guys are obviously anticipating something like. Look, this. We, we would definitely benefit if that was the case. I wouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't lie. If you know, I wouldn't be if, if there wasn't some. We would definitely see an increase in in drone use. I think a lot of the transition to that is our comfort level in in this new technology. How how comfortable are we that the drone flying there is safe um that the right person behind that drone is is you know the right person's controlling that drone i think with time we'll get a lot better with that and and the technologies will improve and our comfort level will change and we'll start to see it changing lives rather than being seen as just a gimmicky tool that that's when i think it will change but to be honest 
they'll be boring. Like, don't get me wrong. The drone use that we're talking about is boring. A drone 2D mapping or 3D mapping a building is absolutely boring, right? There's no excitement about that, but it can change the way we reduce risk. So at the moment, if we're doing a building assessment now, we'll send people abseiling down the side of a building. They've got a harness in, they're going down, they're operating from heights, like the biggest cause of OHS risk and, and costly accidents at work is falls from heights. Now, you think of the time that it involves someone to go down, abseiling down, taking photos on the way down of damages to it. Now, we can do that and they've got to do that along each building, in on the building at different points to be able to see the whole building. Now, you can basically do the entire building with a drone probably in under an hour. So so the cost effect is, is phenomenal. Um, the reduction in risk is incredible. The important thing to forget is that we're creating jobs and ideally we can upskill those people that were doing the abseiling or whatever it might be to see the benefit to get them to be able to do part of the controls and the safety assessments. So instead of doing one building, they can do 10 buildings um, and then we can program, program off the back of it. So it is about that future progression and I think – down the track will we see drones in your head flying around it will be a very safe control manner there'll be probably if i had to speculate um you know channels where you're allowed to fly drones and they'll be above power lines or you know not necessarily about power lines but they'll be in places where it's safe to do i think i think we've got to respect casa which is the civil aviation safety authority they're the regulators of of aviation in australia of all of all aircrafts they do a great job in priorities prioritizing safety of people property um and and i guess the aviation industry and and we've got to respect the rules that they're implementing and they're they're on the ball I, i think they're quite good i think they're respectfully slow in this area because they know they don't want to change the laws just because there's a push for new technology new innovation i think they're being very understanding of the benefits that this can happen commercially without compromising risk what I've picked up from you through this chat about Batir and its creation and its evolution yeah. and where you're at with this beginning journey with Birdie, the drone company, it's I can see why you've got so much drive here because it's not just a drone company. You're not just trying to create an industry around that. What you're actually doing is connecting with your core values around – uh, making a difference and you know that ripple effect and changing people's lives like you the things that you talk about there are safety and health mm. uh, and management in those regards so to have that as your driver that's congruent or in, in a line with your core values i have no doubt that we'll see birdie prosper and uh you probably end up with a birdie bum tattoo too i, I, I did say i've got a spare cheek on the other side um waiting for the right opportunity to uh get another tattoo and and after that's filled then i've got my wife's two cheeks as well um to, to come up with other ideas i'm not sure she's up for that but so uh, after birdie we've got two more businesses two coming more business. from yeah. seb wait wait till i get kids <laughs> it's, endless. it's endless you're not leaving this startup area i can tell it's just the more cheeks that come out the more startups no, wait, don't, don't, the startups can take their toll on an individual i think hopefully down the track i'll be able to help other people come up with ideas and i can i can support them in their endeavors but for now i've got the passion like you i, I love this space I, I think where you can make a change and you want to make a change i say go for it and and whilst i've got that and i've got the drive and i can get the right people around me then then I feel it's um, it's an honour to be able to pursue something that I'm that I that I can do and and can make an impact on. Well, speaking about change, I'm all about action, and I ask 
or ask all my guests this question and it's to help myself and the listeners implement something helpful into their lives to, yep. to make that change. I want to know what's your advice on what specific action our listeners can take today to become more impactful in their lives and in yep. their communities. I'll give, I'll give, I'll go with something tangible first and, and it's small and we touched on it earlier, clean and simple, make your bed. Make your bed, start every day a new day. Every day we can set our attitude, make your bed. Um, that's a very – it's useful for me. It might not be for other people, but that, that's what I love. So, um, and, and I've owned it. The, the older I get, the, the more I seem to take pride in this mentality of making my own bed consciously. The, on a broader context and, and probably falling back to a bit to Batir and, and the mental health side of things is um, – Ask yourself what conversations are you involved in? Are you comfortable talking about your own journey? So before you ask someone else, can I help you? How can I help you get help? Ask yourself, what is it that I do to support myself in times of trouble? Where is it that I would turn to? And what resources do I know I can lean on when I need them? Now, if you can answer those questions, it's a lot easier to go and help someone else. So that idea of put your mask on first before you go and help someone else. So I think if you want to change that game, do that. Be a part of those conversations. Those conversations are really what matter. The quality of the questions you ask yourself are directly related to the quality of your life. So I understand what you're saying there. That's a mm. great, great piece of advice. Now, before we dive into the fast five questions, uh, I wanted to give you a – you are already a supporter of our Life Tees campaign and it's very close to you. And I've just been traveling so I don't actually have it with me. But what I've organized is one for your gorgeous wife who I haven't oh, actually met amazing. yet. Amazing. So there'll be one waiting for you at the Batir office and that's oh, one, of our, one of our Life Tees to, to help support uh, you guys. But just my way of saying thank you and to align with my values of giving. Thank you, Brett. Now, no, it's amazing. I love the, love the life tease as well. So. <laughs> Two-part question. Where can our listeners learn more about you? So social media, website, et cetera. Yep. And how can I and the listeners help you on your journey? Okay. So the first one, uh, how can you follow? Um, Batir, um, jump onto the website. It's the best, the best platform. So batyr.com.au. Uh, that, that has all the links and, and you can see a lot of what's happening and the numbers and impact and where we're at. So jump onto the Batir website. Um, on the Birdie side, the, the drone applications, uh, it's birdi.com.au. Um, similar, jump on there and, and, and reach out. If you want to get in touch with me personally, LinkedIn is probably the, the easiest. Um, I'm on Twitter, but I'm not very good at it, so go LinkedIn. Um, in terms of what can you do and, and, and your listeners, uh, well, firstly, if you've lasted this long, thank you. Uh, hopefully I wasn't that boring, but um, I appreciate you listening the whole way through. I think uh, these communities really do make a difference. Um, for us on the Batir front, I'll talk about two different communities and I guess I have different roles. The Batir community is um, if you have a story that you can share, that you want to share, if you know someone that's been through something before that, They'd be a phenomenal speaker and be an inspiration to a young person hearing. Get them to get in touch with Batir. Um, we are constantly looking for young people in the community to, to really make an impact and, and drive it. Um, and if you're not one of those 
if you're not an individual person who has a story to tell, you will know someone in the community or you can support someone in the community through that journey. So, so reach out and find those people and speak positively about people that have overcome challenges in the mental health space. I think that's the best impact that, that you can have. And, and I think we're seeing that through COBAR and, and other communities um, across Australia and, and Batiz facilitated that in, in a role that they can. On the birdie front, we're a lot smaller. We're a lot starting from scratch. It's it's you know in any opportunity we kind of jump at. So so if you're thinking about drone use and and how you might use it, or you've got a drone and you're trying to work out what you can do with it, um, get in touch with us. We'd we'd love to we'd love to connect up and and see if there are opportunities that we can use. If you're if you're playing a sport club and you want to see if drones can help you out as well, or you want to train people up, then get in touch as well. And that's a great way um, to stay connected. Okay, so the fast five questions. Don't give yourself too much time to think about it. Just right. let it roll off the tongue. Okay, here we go. What's one habit you wish you could change? My drinking habit. That's horrible. <laughs> I thought you might have said tattooing your bum cheeks. <laughs> what makes you feel absolutely pumped and exhilarated and energised? Uh, the first thing that pops into my time with family, time with Shaz, my wife. I just love, I love family. So, you know, I, when there's wins on that front, I, I feel like life's good. Have you ever washed a dog? Yeah, definitely. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Oh, there, there's been a couple. I reckon the best one was probably the the standard one of, um, you know, I was making some complaint and wanting something to change and then the question comes back of, well, who, who do you want to change it? Why don't you just change it? And that mentality of take ownership. If you want to change something, do it yourself. Like make it work yourself and then and then and then it's more likely to get done. So that that's a big one for me is take take ownership and and drive things. And what are you most grateful for in your life right now? Uh look, I I think I've been pretty fortunate to be here. I know this is a like in the bigger picture, like to actually be here, be a part of the things that I've been a part of. I think that we're in a brilliant time in the community and um playing a role with Batir and now with Birdie. I like that I can have a role um, in, in these spaces, um, but probably most grateful and happily share it with your listeners is that my wife's pregnant as well. So that's probably a pretty good thing to be grateful for and then looking forward to uh, influencing my child and hopefully they don't pick up the same bad habits that I have. Massive congratulations yeah, thank you. there. That's thank awesome. You. Seb, you're a legend. You are creating a legacy that many people will be proud to enhance and optimise. Keep changing and saving people's lives, my man. Thanks so much, bro. Thanks so much for having us on. We're going to finish with a hug. Well, there you have it. A values-based CEO with a deep drive of social focus. I hope you got a lot out of the power of Batir and their amazing ability to change and save people's lives through smashing the stigma of mental health. If you believe the Batir program is something your community could benefit from, jump onto their website and contact them. As you heard, when it becomes a community-driven initiative, that's when the organisation has the capacity to implement their powerful programs and make the massive impact they do. You'll find Batir's details in the show notes of this episode in your podcast app or also on the website at yourlifeofimpact.com forward slash Sebastian Robertson. If you like this episode, please jump onto your podcast app and give us a five-star review. This helps immensely for me to be able to continue delivering value to you. It doesn't matter what app you're using, whether it's Apple Podcasts, which is formerly known as iTunes Podcast, whether it's Podcast Addict or Stitcher or whatever it is. You guys subscribing and downloading each episode is what keeps this podcast alive. 
And also, please share with your friends, your family, your community, and everyone you believe will benefit from this podcast. Don't forget to give me your feedback on what you loved and what you want to hear more of, so what value I can help bring into your reality. Reach out to us on social media, so Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Life for Excellence. That's at L-I-F-E-F-O-R-X-L-N-S. And you can also find us at yourlifeofimpact.com. And as always, remember, this is your life journey, your life of impact.